live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back to the last part of this series on the Vilna Gaon. The last two had an incredible reception, as always, but especially when we bring along Rabbi Tetz, it's always very well received. So this is the final part. I'm not going to recap both parts to date, but just wanted to recall the detail that the Gaon was asked to get involved in the dispute between Rabbi Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yonis but you said he essentially didn't. Correct. But yep. this week, we're going to be covering the issue of Hasidus. Now, we have spoken at length about Hasidus, but particularly about the Gon, when he played a very strong role, as is known. And the question obviously is, which I'm hoping you're going to address, why did he decide to get involved in Hasidus? Okay. So, first to mention that this three-part series is dedicated Le'ilu Nishmas Sara Bas Neach. To answer your question, or to address it anyway, just on the basic level, there are obvious differences between the two disputes. The first occurred when the Gorn was only 35 and in countries to which he was not linked, and many other Abonim were already involved, whereas this disagreement really starts in 1772, when he signed a ban, a harem, against the revolutionary movement which became known as Chassidus, and by then he was in his 50s. And it is interesting to note that the Gorn never issued his harem during the lifetime of the Baal Shem Tov, who was the, obviously the founder of Hasidus, and only at the very end of the life of the second leader of the movement, the Mezritch Magid, just before it broke into various groups, uh, as we spoke about during the two-part podcast on the origins of Hasidus. But the fact that it was breaking apart could have been part of the motivation in 1772. How strongly was the Vilna Gaon opposed to Hasidus? Well, he looked at Hasidus as heresy. He writes that both as it stood and equally what it could become. And you might think that it is extreme or even too extreme, but that's because most people think the argument was about uh, behavior or times of tefillah or knives that they used for shechita. But these are simply the outcome of factors underpinning the controversy. The crux of the debate boils down to two things, minor points, God and Torah. Hmm. Um, At its fundamental, it was a debate, a standoff, between what is called in English imminence versus transcendence, meaning there is a contradiction. On the one hand, ein oid milvadi, meaning everything and everywhere is God. Yet, on the other hand, there is the fact that we have free will, independent ability to choose, for which we are punished if we choose wrongly. So it's obviously a real choice. And this, at a macro level, this, this concept of independence, is called tzimtzum that HaKadosh Baruch Hu contracted himself out of creation to allow us a space in which we could exist. Now, these two ideas that I've just mentioned are absolutely contradictory, yet they have both got to be true. And the true answer is therefore 
unknowable to finite, limited creations. So, so far, so good. Not really. Are you saying that all the Machlokas is over a philosophical concept, which is basically impossible to be proven either way? It's unknowable, I guess. But okay. So firstly, at least we understand that it isn't sort of, you know, about Nusach. Uh, do you say Hoidu before Baruch Omar? It's about why were you created? Because in our service of the divine, our Avoida, we have to choose which of those two contradictory elements to focus on. Hasidim placed total emphasis on the first and the Gon on the second. And the conclusion of these two approaches, according to Hasidus, there is no area bereft of divinity. There's no substance which is empty of godliness. So they don't believe that there's such a thing as pure evil? Correct. Everything is divine. Evil is simply a lower form of godliness. And I'm not extrapolating here. This is all clearly written. Both sides have their views in writing. The Grohl was very troubled by these teachings and the doctrine of imminence. And in his letter in Tishri in 1796, which is exactly a year before he died, he attacked them precisely for this, for saying that there is holiness even in wood, stones and dust. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the philosophical debate, but surely everything comes from God. So there's, where's the room for the Vilna Gon to say that there's something that's almost bereft of a godly presence? Okay, so what we have to understand is there's a difference between divinity and divine presence. Tzimtzum does not mean that God doesn't exist where he has contracted himself out, but he allows us the ability to function there independently in a world that he has still created. Let's develop it and we'll see if you still have the question at the end of it. So independent corroboration of the Gros position comes from an undeniably knowledgeable source, the Balatanya, who is his greatest opponent, who admits that this is the Gond's greatest problem with Hasidus. And I quote, it is precisely in these areas that the Gond and Hasid found objections in my book, Sefer, the Tanya, the teaching that God fills the world, and that there is no place where God is not, are interpreted by us in a literal sense, wherein in his esteemed opinion, it is pure heresy to hold that Hashem can be found in the mundane things of this world. And in fact, in another letter, the Balatanya refers to this gap between the two as the gap between Apikorosus and Emunah Shlema. So on a practical level, what does this actually mean? Well, on a practical level for them, in other words, for these great people, as opposed to on a practical level for us, which I will still get to, the outcome of the difference was seen in something that we referred to in part one of this series. The Gond's absolute reluctance to be involved with those ensnared in sin, with a, a Dibuk, for example. It's not because it distracted him from learning. It was much deeper than that. It was a pronounced contrast between the Gon and the Baal Shem Tov. Not only did the Baal Shem Tov not recoil from contact with the powers of the Sitra Achra, the dark side, 
he in fact actually sought to confront them face to face. This is part of how he defined the idea of being ma'ale nitsotsis, elevating fallen sparks of potential holiness, which both the Balatani and the Gon refer to. Amongst other things, he even tried to redeem the soul of Shabtai Tzvi. And these confrontations, according to the Baal Shem Tov, were an important part of his mission because they are dealing with godliness. In contrast, the Vilna Gorn sees his role to remain as far as possible within the realms of purity, because otherwise you're straying into areas where God is not. So it would seem his position would be at least visually looked at as more of a kanoi, as more someone who's a... No, 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 no. It's nothing to do with kanos. It's nothing to do with being a zealot. It's to do with elevating even the concept of sin as having redeeming value. In the Gorn's eyes, that was heresy. This is not because he is a a zealot, but because, as the Balatanya himself acknowledges, there are two fundamental positions which can be taken when you are looking at a contradiction in definitions of existence, and whichever one you take, from the other perspective, it seems heretical. Right. I guess uh, you can understand both points of view. Well, you see, nowadays that both have been accepted, you can see the value in either. But back then, when one of these views is revolutionary and attacks fundamental positions and ideas, you can understand that it is going to be viewed with total rejection. It's not zealotry, especially because it was not that long after Shabtai Tzvi, who was a false messiah, who had also brought in Kabbalistic teachings to justify his actions, and Hasidus stressed other elements of Judaism above Torah, Simcha, Tefillah, and therefore it created friction. And we need to understand that Hasidus is revolutionary. It's not two established streams of Judaism arguing. It's an upstart group. Now, it happens to be that Hasidus saved hundreds of thousands of Jews in Poland and Ukraine from falling off the edge. And it was a necessary and successful social revolution. But it could equally have been a successful social heretical revolution. Look at Shabtai Tzvi. So you're saying the Vilna Gorm was scared it would go down the wrong path? He believed it was the wrong path, not it could so, eventually end up there. So now that we're at this point in history, can we say the Vilna Gorm was wrong? No, what we can say is that the proponents of it prevented it from becoming a movement that views sin as something positive, even though there are elements within Hasidus that talk about these ideas, but they are given in a very qualified form. And this could be the Vilna Gons credit from the... Potentially. It's, it's difficult to know what would have happened had he not got involved. That's, you know, it's an impossible conundrum to resolve. We also need to understand, how did the Hasidim regard their persecutor? How did Hasidic leaders explain to themselves and to their students that their chief opponent was the greatest scholar of the generation? So the Balatanya, once again, who was a victim of Jewish informers and twice arrested as a result by the Russian authorities, related to the role played by the Vilna Gaon on two levels. On the one hand, he acknowledged the Gaon's eminence as the greatest scholar of his day. On the other, he absolutely challenged his authority to determine that Hasidus was 
a heresy. He bridged the distance between these two positions by explaining that the Gond was acting in innocence, but was deceived by perjurers. He also explained Kabbalistically that the struggle against Hasidus was ultimately to the benefit of Hasidus. It was divine providence seeking to help Hasidus, which is part of this whole idea, but used in a very particular format. You did mention that Hasidim stressed other elements of Judaism. Yes. So one of the concepts was de-emphasizing the importance of or even the need to learn Torah. I mean, we went into this in more detail in the podcast on Hasidus, and people can listen to it there. But on a, a practical level for the average Jew, the questions then become, are Tfila and Torah equal, or is Torah always superior? What will bring Mashiach? Will it only be Torah? Torah is Keneged Kulam. It's the equivalent of all the other 612, so surely it must be 612 times larger, so to speak, than any of the others. Is everything else in the background? But that's not really how it comes across. Tefillah, Chesed, all of these things play a very large role, let's say, in the bringing of Mashiach. How can it? Another difference would be the correct times for davening. Is Kavana? meaning the intent and the understanding of the words of prayer, the most important part of prayer? And if it is, how important? Is it important enough to need hours of preparation? Yes. Is it important enough to miss the appointed halachic time for tefillah? If you look in Shulchan Aruch, there are almost contradictory statements about this in chapter 98 and chapter 101. It's unclear. And this is a battleground between Hasidus and the Lithuanian world of halacha. Now, nowadays, basically, the whole thing is over. I don't mean only the fight is over. I mean that neither of these two purist philosophies exist anymore. You know, you open a Rav Desla, who is a mashkech and a litvish yeshiva, and you will find in it quotes of the Balatanya sitting side by side, quotes of Rabbi Sral Salant. You listen to a shir given by a Hasidic speaker in Yiddish, and he will quote the Vilna Gaon. You open any safer on the laws of Shabbos, and you will find rulings on one page which originate from Ramosha Feinstein or the Chaznish, and on the next page rulings from the Avnei Neza or the Minchas Yitzchok. So you're basically saying that, seeing that possibly the Vilna Gon's whole fight against Hasidim was due to him being scared where it would go, and then we saw that it went well, and it settled well against Jews around the world, then we both both sects saw advantages of the of the other and they got diluted is that what you're saying so listen there is obviously an advantage to the fact that the machlokas has come to a close and that we use both strands in our writings and in our way of divine service but clearly losing the purity of a particular masera of a particular tradition, to use a word that in English means a lot less than in Hebrew, means that there is a loss in the process. And once again, to come back to the fact, it's not that the Gon simply saw that there would be a problem in the future. From his perspective, this way of defining Judaism is heresy. The fact that we have now blended both sides together means that his objection no longer stands. That's true. But given that a century earlier, Shabtai Tzvi 
had, with tremendous Kabbalistic knowledge, brought about a movement that made sense on paper, but was completely incorrect, shows us that these things are possible even within the framework of what could pass for authentic Judaism. Even in more recent times, we have Gadolim such as Rav Shach, who are very vocal about what they thought about difference. Right. Yes, that's correct. There is a series of podcasts by somebody called Rabbi Arnie Wittenstein in Eretz Yisrael. He's got maybe, I don't know, 20 recordings just on the Vilna Gaon. And there, if somebody really wants to pursue this and understand this at a proper depth, you'll find it there. In fact, he mentioned something very interesting. He knows of a sort of what you might call a real Litvak who sings that song, you know, Hashem is here, Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere. He sings it as Hashem's presence is here. Hashem's presence is there. But Hashem isn't truly everywhere because that's exactly what the Gon said would be wrong. Hmm. It would be heresy to sing this song, <laughs> right? Okay, so as I said, there is a lot more to this, but at least let us understand that the argument was deep, was central, and was based on terror, not politics. Now, there was another major episode in the Gon's life which started when the son of one of the Kehillah members, an 18-year-old, unfortunately converted to Christianity. And in those days, it was forbidden for Jews to bring back somebody who had done so. And anyway, the boy was in a monastery. But there was a Jew called Kwiatkowski, something like that. He was no saint, but he had access to the monastery. And Hersha's family paid him to travel to Vilna, where they took him to visit the Gorn three times. And the Gorn impressed upon him the importance of bringing this boy back to his family and promised him a portion in the world to come if he succeeded. So on January the 23rd, 1788, this guy coaxed this boy into taking a walk outside the monastery. And a few minutes into their stroll, he was grabbed by his brothers and other members of the Vilna community, uh, put in a carriage, redressed in women's clothing, smuggled initially to Vilkomir and then to Dvinsk. But within a week, 22 Jews were arrested, including the Vilna Gorn, and put in jail. During his questioning, the Vilna Gorn refused to answer any questions. There are still records as part of the Vilna archives, not the Jewish archives, the non-Jewish archives. He confirmed only one thing, that the Talmud does indeed say that there are three sins from which one is required to give up one's life rather than commit. He, for instance, refused to answer the question of why he allowed a Jew to travel on Shabbos to Warsaw. And he remains in jail for a month. When he came out of jail, he's missed four Shabbosis. So he got a Balkere to read all four weeks of the sedras that he had missed. And also during those four weeks, his pupil, Rabbi Yitzchok of Velozhin, a brother of Rabbi Chaim, passed away. Who He was a complete genius, and the Vilnagon was obviously unable to go to the to Levaya. Why did they release the Vilnagon? This was a preliminary arrest. This was followed by an investigation and a, another court case, this one in 1789. And this time they jailed a number of the original suspects, including the Vilnagon, for longer periods of time. Now, the jail was supposed to be the central jail in Vilna, but the Jews managed to transfer them through bribes 
to a place which the city kept partially as a jail and partially as a police administration office, the local town hall. And they arranged that there would be a minion there. And the jail sentence started on the 20th of September 1789, which in Jewish terms was the 29th of Elul, otherwise known as Erev Rosh Hashanah. So on the day before Rosh Hashanah, the Gon is sent to jail. This time, it's the second time in jail. He is there over Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and it is famously recorded that on that Sukkot, in order not to sleep outside of a Sukkah, he ran around his cell to keep himself awake, prevent himself from falling asleep. And eventually the authorities allowed him to sit in the sukkah. They were scared he would die or that he was going mad. And ultimately he was released before the end of that year and he was 69 years old. Wow. I've never heard that story. Yep. What happened to the boy who converted? It's not really known, but I guess either way it would have been kept quiet by either side, whoever sort of had the, so to speak, victory. Wow. There is one other thing I've been meaning to ask since you started this series, the Gorilla Grill. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Is there evidence that the the grill was involved in it? So Gorilla translates as a lottery. It's really, I guess you could call it a ceremony, using a particular Tanakh, to determine a course of action when in great doubt. It was used by a an array of very great Rabbonim in the 20th century, including the Chofetz Chaim, the Briskorov, Rabbi Aaron Kotler, Rabbi Rucham Levovitz and others. Unsurprisingly, it ended up being used more frequently during periods of war than of peace because it is only supposed to be used when there can be no clarity achieved using conventional methods of Torah or Psak. Otherwise, it's forbidden. It's a, it's a lack of faith. The Chofetz Chaim used it during and immediately after World War I, and both the Briskorov and Rabaron Kotler used it to determine their next steps during World War II. The Briskorov reached Vilna in 1939. He wasn't sure whether to go from there to America or Eretz Israel. And the girl produced the following posuk for him. Yalu horim yerdvukois el mekoim zeh. Ascend mountains, etc. to this place, i.e. Eretz Yisrael. And indeed, his route via Turkey required him to do just that. Basically climb mountains. And that's how the Briskorov related the event. And famously, Rubaron Kotler had a similar dilemma when he was leaving Japan, whether to accept Ramosha Feinstein's invitation, is in the middle of the war, to go to New York or to travel to his father-in-law, Rabbis Alman Meltzer, in Yerushalayim. And the posuk he found was, Hashem said to Aaron, go to Moshe in the Midbar, uh, the desert, which is an apt description of religious life in the USA in 1941. Did the gone invent, I don't know if the invent is the right word, discover this method? So the girl was never publicly taught. And the Masur is that it was passed from teacher to Talmud from the Vilna Gon. You know, one of the names most associated with Gerla Gra in modern times is Rebellia Lopian. His family and Talmudim know of a number of instances where he used it, and he was taught by the Chofetz Chaim how to do so. In fact, in a Jewish auction in August 2020, I saw a page for sale with his written instructions as to how to proceed. He placed two important conditions on the process, that it should only be used where, so to speak, both sides are equally weighed up 
and there is no obvious solution or svarim. And secondly, that the person agrees to carry out whatever the instruction reveals. He would fast the day before he used the Goral Hagro. Perhaps the most famous use of it was in 1951 with uh, Rabari Levine, who carried it out on the instruction of the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, Rabbi Frank. And it came about because during the 48 war in Israel, Jewish soldiers had died defending Gush Etzion. And when the bodies were eventually gathered together, there were some in trenches, some in ditches, they were reburied. But there were 35 of those who had met their death on the way there, rushing to its rescue. And they were buried in a temporary grave with, you know, a thin layer of earth because under enemy fire, they'd been buried in haste. It was a superhuman effort to observe the laws of Jewish burial. And attempts were subsequently made to establish their identities. But the battle conditions did not allow them to create an exact system of identification. The 35 coffins were brought to Yerushalayim and they were buried in the military cemetery on Har Herzl. 23 could be identified absolutely. And for the rest, all they knew was a list of 12 names, but no way to link a particular person with any of those graves. So on 23 of them, there were names and 12 unnamed. The grieving parents went to Rabbi Pesach Frank, and he dispatched a messenger to ask Rabbi Ari Levine to carry out the Goral Hagro. But Rabbi Ari felt unworthy, unequal to the task. The chief rabbi disputed that and persisted and basically left him little option until Rabbi Ari agreed. And a journalist was there who described the event, and I quote, It was Thursday night. The people went up to the yeshiva that Rabbi Ari maintained on the upper floor of his humble home in Jerusalem's Mishkanot neighborhood. In the completely dark room, they lit 12 candles. They began by saying to Hillim, there was one basic rule. For each casting of lots, they chose a particular one of the 12 graves to find a name. The deciding verse in the Tanakh to which they came to had to contain or refer to one of those 12 names, and that would be the name for this caver. And they followed the procedure 11 times. There was no need for the 12th. Once the 11 names were assigned, the last name would automatically be the remaining one. And in Goral Hagra, you don't inquire about something to which you already know the answer. To everyone's amazement, each sentence at which they arrived gave a clear and definitive message. In Shmuel Aleph, am I not Ben Yamini? And one of the fallen soldiers was Oded Ben Yamini. In Bereshis, and Yosef said, bring your livestock. This was Yosef Baruch. In Hoshea, the pride, the gone of Israel answers. One of the fallen soldiers was called Eitan Gon. And these findings were ruled as definitive by Rabbi Pesach Frank. Wow. I mean, Rabbi Tatz isn't here this week, but something you said last week um, sort of rings true here, that the entire Torah, the way we have it today, the way it was originally before the creation of the world was the entire history and future of the world is in the Torah somewhere. So I don't know if I'm suggesting the mechanism, but clearly events happen in the Torah and the Torah has full... Correct. Yep. Okay, finally, so you've covered the Gorilla Grah. You have a picture of the Gon on the poster advertising the series, which yes. uh, people have mentioned, they've seen. Is it really what he looked like? Because it's not like you to put a picture that is not doesn't have some sort of 
verified source? Or is it just made up like uh, the Rambam and there's many others who are just artistic impressions? Okay, so obviously it is much closer to our days than the Rambam. And there are at least three or four distinct portraits that are billed as authentic, even though they are somewhat different to one another. It appears that there was only one portrait that was painted or made in the Gons lifetime during the 1750s. And the later ones in the 1800s become increasingly more elaborate. They begin to show him in rabbinic garb and with tzvillin, which didn't make its debut until the 1880s. And in one case, a picture was analysed and the conclusion was that it wasn't of a Jew because the book in front of him is not a Hebrew book and the hat is not a rabbinical hat. Even though the Gon's garb was changed, the original photo or picture rather of the face could have been the same and the garb being changed because it maybe seemed too fancy. The one that I selected is one where the, the gone seems to be more of a, uh, a dress that would fit with the 1700s than the 1800s. And it is one of the images that vies for authenticity. It could be. And on that point, I'd like to thank Daniel Lipson for sending me an article on this. The article is inconclusive, but yeah, it's uh, very possible. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do some say that the picture you put on the poster was found in an attic somewhere? That I didn't come across in the article, and I read it in brief in the uh, Hebrew biography of the Gorn. It might be in there, but uh, didn't note it as such. One final point on the Gorilla Grill. I'm sure listeners are going to question it, so I'm just uh, going to take a shortcut. Rabbi Avram Gurvitz, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of Gates of Yeshiva, who I'm sure some of our listeners have passed through, they say there was a gorilla grow done, I'm sure. I'm sure By Rabbi Elia. Yes. When the question was whether uh, Rabbi Avram should marry his first cousin, and that the one being called Avram and one being called Sorrow the Apostle came out. I have heard that. I've heard that a number of times. We can authenticate it quite easily, I'm sure, with members of the family, but it is very possible. Okay, definitely. So if any of our listeners can authenticate it, we'd be happy to receive the feedback. And talking about feedback and responses, we mentioned at the end of a series we would include certain emails that have come forward. Some that covers other podcasts in the history for the curious run, but we've picked out a few and that might be of interest to the listeners. So we have Abby in Edgware, and he asks about the Christianity ones. And I'm going to quote his email. Granted that Paul was an interesting individual, but in view of the fact that he did not know Yeshu, how and why did it occur to him to promulgate, I believe is, is the yes. correct pronunciation, a theological scenario featuring a person that he didn't know and didn't meet? Yes, he never met him, but that doesn't mean he wasn't acquainted with his views or those of Christianity in general. And since he was also allegedly persecuting Christians, his vision may have arisen from guilt. So it's not that far to assume that he was acquainted with it. Right. Okay. We have Solly in Jackson, New Jersey, who asked, if there's no incentive to be good, why are so many of my Christian neighbors such decent and for the most part moral people? Okay. Well, you can't use today to understand the past because Western morality and its educational system and middle-class status has created almost an impetus for morality and for taking care of others, which is unconnected to religion per se. 
you know, take the USA, where the divide between church and state is so enormous that any public school is prohibited from teaching religious classes, even outside of hours, but on school grounds, which means that the majority of Americans are schooled without any religious input, yet they feel America should save the world. And therefore, your neighbors could be moral people without it having come directly as a result or a consequence of Christianity as such. That's a good point, especially if uh, Solly's been following the news recently, he'll see certain headlines about the church that have somewhat... Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's true as well. Next, Yeshua's got a suggestion for us, because we always say we'd like suggestions as well as obviously compliments, but even qu- about questions. Um, his suggestion is, he writes, I often wonder at the end of any given episode whether there's a way that I could read and learn more about the topic that was just discussed. I was thinking that Perhaps in the show's notes, you could mention two or three books or articles, be they academic or regular, which the listener could refer to if they were interested in learning more about the topic. Yep, that's actually a very good idea. For this series, there is a book by Emmanuel Etkus on the Vilna Gorn and a Hebrew three volume by Rabbi Eliach. But I also mentioned earlier, Rabbi Arnie Wittenstein has, uh, you know, perhaps 20 hours of recordings on the Vilna Gaon and on the debate between Hasidus. And that will, you know, that will keep Yeshua busy. Yes. We have Shmuley Levinson in Israel. So he sent in a copy of an English newspaper, the London Magazine, from 1753, which seems to be a real-time report on the Gerard Sedek and the story you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And he adds that the date was June 11th, 1753. And this corresponds to Shavuos, the day that we know that the Gerard Sedek was killed al Kid Shashem. However, it's four years later to what is known as the date of his murder. Okay. That is unusual because it possibly constitutes the first record of the story. The fact that it is four years out does raise somewhat of a question, but it could be that the report came out in somewhat of a garbled form from Lithuania to England and that it had actually occurred four years earlier. That's possible. Okay. And uh, lastly for this one, we have Boruch he's local, he's based in Goldscreen, and he suggested that we deal sometime with the Talmud Yerushalmi, which gets way less coverage than the Bavli. Yes, um, we will, uh, especially the missing volumes and the story of the forged section. Since we are giving feedback, I'd like to add a comment from a friend of mine in Baltimore, Danny Rubin, who wrote to say that I may be the only podcaster who, in the course of the podcasts, has demolished the legend of the Golem, the legend of Santa Claus, and the legend of Robin Hood. <laughs> and as well as the story of the shots are ever giving King George a blessing for his daughter, Queen Elizabeth. Yes. We're really doing well. Yep. Any other mythological characters that you want Rabbi Hirsch to demolish, right. please do send your suggestions. Okay, I think that sort of wraps up this series. It's been incredible and fascinating. And as we said, we'd, we'd obviously like to do more, particularly focusing on fascinating characters, figures, Godolim throughout history. What do you have planned for us next? The next series is all during the 17th century. I'm not going to reveal it all now, other than to say that listeners will finally hear about Shabtai Tzvi and the damage that he wreaked that next week. Um, and then we will do with two other figures. Yeah, you've promised us Shabtai Tzvi for some time A now. while, yes. Thank you very much. As usual, please send your 
questions, your comments, your feedback, your suggestions to podcasts at jle.org.uk and we'll respond to them and possibly even get a mention. Thank you. Thank you.